You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning. Thank you for being here today. So glad that you're here to worship the Lord with us this morning. And thank you, um, worship team, all those in the back, everybody who's serving today is so grateful for them and the beautiful presentation of the budget. It's a little time so that when you actually pick the budget up, you know, maybe you won't be shocked so quickly. It is a, a, an increase, but we're doing it, as Jim said, on faith. Well, several years ago, close to this time of the year, the tallies and the cobras met up right outside of Duke Chapel for a presentation of Handel's Messiah. Now, I am ashamed to admit that it was my first encounter with the full oratorio. Um, the, I, I was familiar with the Hallelujah Chorus and For Unto Us a Child is Born. But just looking through the program as we were waiting for it to begin, I recognized right away that the arrangement of Scripture in Handel's Messiah is the best gospel presentation I've ever seen. And I don't ever anticipate seeing anything better for the rest of my days. There's no explanation. It's just Scripture. And Scripture that is sung beautifully. Uh, as best I can count, there are 61 Bible passages in this 18th century work, some with one verse, but several uh, with multiple verses. Now, you would expect this being a fantastic gospel presentation that the great majority of the verses would be from the New Testament, right? Well, you already suspect what is true, that that is not the case. As far as, again, I can count, there are 35 Old Testament texts and only 26 New Testament texts. Isaiah is featured prominently in Messiah, particularly Isaiah 53. This morning is a communion sermon, a communion sermon that is rooted in the Old Testament. It's found in Isaiah 53, of all places. Though we will read from 1 Corinthians 11 when we prepare for the Lord's Supper. Why an Old Testament text for a Lord's Supper sermon? If you don't already know, I think you'll have an idea by the time we come to the table. The structure of Isaiah is worth noting. Now, you might be tempted to say something like, structure schmutcher, just give me the Bible. I don't care about structure. But what you might not realize is that the structure, when we understand it, brings much deeper meaning to the text than you would find just by a surface or a, 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 a reading through that is, is more skimming along uh, the surface. If God cares enough to structure Scripture in a, in a particular way, then it must be important. Now, although the first thing I'm going to talk about, although we should not make too much of the chapter and verse division, since it's not until the 16th century that they were fully established as they are now, it's interesting that there are 66 chapters in Isaiah, and then there are 66 books of the Bible. 
Furthermore, there are 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 books in the New Testament, while there are 39 chapters in part 1 of Isaiah and 27 chapters in part 2 of Isaiah. It's kind of like a mini Bible contained in itself. There's a lot of judgment in the first of Isaiah and a lot of peace in the second part of Isaiah, but we're always warned in the second part of Isaiah to look to the Lord for salvation. So the second part of Isaiah, these 27 chapters, this, the second part is divided into three sections with nine verses each. Even without chapter and verse, we would know that God designed these divisions this way because of the way each section ends. In chapters 40 through 48, that's nine chapters, end with, There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Chapters 49 through 57, once again, nine chapters, end with, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked, Isaiah 57, 21. So you see the theme in these verses, right? Judgment. It is judgment because of the sins of the people. And so what is the consequence of sin? There is no peace For the wicked, there is no shalom for the wicked. Shalom denotes well-being and wholeness and the flourishing that God has built into creation. It's so much more than just a lack of hostility. Shalom goes to the very deepest parts of us. In the fall... Or because of the fall, as my good friend Dave Brown says, shalom was vandalized. I'll be borrowing thoughts from my friend Dave here and there. I have two really close preacher friends. I actually have three close preacher friends. One is is in New York, but the other two and I get together, continue to get together, and we bounce stuff off one another so Sometimes it's hard to know who thought of what or who shared what. But Dave will feature prominently in the message this morning. I'll just tell you that. So, then this last section in the second part of Isaiah. The last section comprises chapters 58 through 66. Once again, nine chapters. And it ends with, and they shall go out... And look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. What an interesting, difficult way for the book of Isaiah to end. I bet you thought Jesus was the first one who said these words. But no, he was quoting Isaiah 66. And it was much like... We try to help children to, to, to avoid danger. It, it, it's like taking their hand maybe and putting it close to, to the fire or the, the stove or something and say, don't touch that. You can see this is hot. It'll burn you. Don't do it. But you let them get a feel for it. And this is 
what Isaiah was doing. It's what Jesus did when he spoke about hell that looks a lot like Isaiah 66, 24. All three of these verses point to the broken shalom in the world because of sin. Since sin is not confined to our actions, but is a very part of our nature, there is nothing we can do about to restore the shalom that was intended for us. If God doesn't restore it, then it's lost forever. Enter the servant of Isaiah. One more list. The four servant songs found in Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, and then one that begins in chapter 52 and ends in 53. Isaiah 53 is right smack in the middle of the second section of the second part of Isaiah. There is no peace says the Lord to the wicked. There is no peace, says my God, to the wicked. And they shall go out and gaze on the dead bodies. All of that is a lack of peace. But Isaiah 53 tells us how peace was restored for God's people. The Lord's servant is referenced many times in Isaiah. And often you can tell that God is naming the nation of Israel as his servant. Who, according to the promises made to Abraham, were designed to bless the entire world through their relationship with Yahweh and his law. But it became obvious fairly early on. That no individual can keep God's law perfectly, much less an entire nation. Therefore, God would send another servant, the Messiah, who would get the job done. We see in these four servant songs that the true servant of the Lord will suffer in the place of For the sins of God's people. Our text this morning is Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. This last and greatest uh, of the four servant songs is divided into four sections of three verses each. Which of course it is. Our initial reading will be in Isaiah 52, verses 13 to 15. And if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. The Lord said through his prophet Isaiah, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you and be seated. 
So who is this servant? This one who will sacrifice himself for sinners. He is both exalted and humiliated. It is, as Isaiah said in verse 14, astonishing to see one so exalted to be beaten beyond human recognition. How could this happen to God's servant? How could this be meaningful? Isaiah 52, 15 may seem strange to you, but when you know the context, it makes perfect sense. In Exodus 24, 8, after Moses had given the Ten Commandments and a portion of the law, the people said, we will obey. And he said, okay. And he took the blood of, of a sacrifice and he sprinkled it on the people. And in the same way that that. Moses sprinkled blood on the people. The the blood of the Lamb of God has been sprinkled on us. The Lamb of God shed his blood to take away the sins of the world. Not just the sins of the Israelites, but the people of nations all over the world. Hebrews 10.22 speaks of the sprinkling of, of Jesus' blood, cleansing our hearts and consciences from guilt when and as we approach him with hearts that are, have a full assurance of faith. No wonder Isaiah fifty-two fifteen tells us that the rulers of the nations are astounded that a crucified king is really God's plan for salvation. How much greater the astonishment When they realize that the crucified king is God himself. So what is the response of these astonished dignitaries? It's misunderstanding, resentment, rejection. Isaiah 53 verses 1 through 3. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And is one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. The Israelites had an image of the Messiah that they assumed their God would sin. I mean, what was there about Jesus that was attractive? The Jews of Jesus' time both desired and anticipated a swashbuckling conqueror, a good-looking guy who was going to lead the troops and defeat the Romans, throw off the bondage of the people. That's what they anticipated. At least that's what they thought they needed. Not only was Jesus not the sort of Messiah that leaders would be drawn to, but he carried a great deal of emotional baggage. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So how could one loser deliver other losers? 
The reception of Jesus reminds us of John 1.17. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So this is a good place to ask. How much do you value knowing Jesus? Are you ever ashamed of him? Or are you happy to be identified with him and known as one of his followers? If Jesus came to his own people and they did not accept him, then why did he come? Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Verse 4 puts it in plain terms. Jesus suffered the wrath of God on our behalf. And to be more specific, he suffered the wrath of God on my behalf. On your behalf. Do you see it? The truth becomes even clearer in verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Wait, do you remember Isaiah 48, 22 and 57, 11? There is no shalom for the Lord, says the Lord, for the wicked. No peace. Since all sinners, and that would be all of us, are considered wicked before the Lord, we are left wondering how we could ever attain peace. Isaiah 53 tells us how it is, 3.5 tells us how it is possible. Upon him was laid the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. When we are gathered together in worship, we are commanded to remember the Lord's death by observing the Lord's Supper. This is why we remember. Not because Jesus came to be a good example, although he was a great example of how we should live. We remember because he died for our sins. He, he was not given a lethal injection, and then drifted off into his father's arms. He was stripped and humiliated and beaten beyond recognition. Why? It's what our sins require. He took our punishment. It should have been us suffering for eternity, but Jesus was crushed for our sins. Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Perhaps the most frustrating of my sinful tendencies that are constantly before me is my desire to have my own way about, well, just name it, whatever is in front of me. 
I should be punished for my self-absorbed, self-centered, selfish, and sinful ways. But Yahweh laid my iniquity upon his servant. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. When Jesus was on trial and then dying on the cross for my sins, he could have rightly said, you've got the wrong man. It's, this is Brad Talley. He said, what am I, why am I dying for this? But he didn't say a word. In the same way that the father had remained silent the night before when Jesus had prayed, Father, if there is any way for this cup to pass, please let it be. Nevertheless, your will be done. God's silence in heaven when Jesus prayed, the Father's silence shouted his love for us. And Jesus' silence, when he had opportunity to defend himself and to overcome the situation any way he wanted, spoke volumes and shouted his love for us. He remained silent for me, for you. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? The injustice Jesus suffered was not something done to him by a corrupt legal system. The legal system was corrupt. But that's not why Jesus suffered. He suffered for our sins. Verses 9 and 10. And they made his grave with the wicked. And with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet. It was the will of the Lord. To crush him. It was the Father's will to crush the Son. For you. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the, of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Why did the father crush the son? Because he was upset with him? Heavens, no pun intended. Jesus suffered far more than 
physical humiliation and death. He made a sacral, sacrificial offering at the deepest levels of his soul. And although he died for us, death had no claim on his perfect soul and, it, and could not keep him down. His offering pleased Yahweh, who saw the plan from be, uh, beginning to the end, as did Jesus. Of course, verses 11 and 12. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. That's how we're saved. Because God says, you are righteous. Not based on what we've done, but only what Jesus has done. And our acceptance of that. He shall, obey, he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and now makes intercession for the transgressors. The story is not over. Jesus will reign, and those who belong to him will reign with him. And yet we are never to forget that he was numbered or counted as one of us, as one of the transgressors. It was the only way he could bear our sins to be spotless. And yet one of us, nevertheless, taking our sins to his cross. Jesus was going to reign anyway. He's Lord, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. But the only way we could reign with him was for him to cleanse us and make us righteous. He has done so through his blood sacrifice. That is why we remember. And we come to this table so that we will remember rightly. We don't come to this table to perform our duty and check it off. And we come to remember that Jesus and him, Jesus alone checked all the boxes. And he died in our place on our behalf. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 32 is our text for the table this morning. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body in an Isaiah 53 kind of way, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the, the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. You remember that old covenant when, when, when Moses took the blood from the sacrificial altar and he sprinkled it on the people and he said, you better keep this law or this is what's going to happen. Jesus said, it was never going to work. You could never be that person who always keeps the law. But I've been that person, and now this is the new covenant. That's the old covenant. 
This is the new covenant. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're looking for him to come. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment to himself. Now, if you're here most first Sundays of the month, you will hear me say this often. Please understand we have new folks all the time. And it's always a good reminder. Because a lot of people, when when we read these verses, we're like, oh my, I've I've been struggling with a sin and I, I better not partake because I will eat and drink judgment to myself. There were circumstances at Corinth that, that are not prevalent in our day. And even though it's a principle that we very much need to consider, what was going on in Corinth was the rich people were getting to their weekly meeting and, and um, their uh, love feast. They used to call it a love feast early. They would get there early in the day and they'd start drinking the wine. The slaves and the, and the working class people would come in much later in the day. They didn't have anything to eat. And so these elites who had been eating and drinking all day said, you know, God has blessed us and that's why we have so much. He's judging these poor people and so therefore we better withhold food from them. If God is not giving them food, who are we to give them food? So we can't. So you see, they were making a mockery of the body of Christ. They were getting drunk on the, on the communion wine. And they were also <clears throat> withholding from the poor, the very people Jesus' ministry was directed to most often. And so they were making a mockery of the body of Christ. Now, if you're living in sin and you're like, yeah, I'm going to do anything I want, I would advise you not to take at this table. But if you have committed that sin for the 1,000th, for the 10,000th time this week, and you're so ashamed and you're so, oh God, how could I... Confess your sin in just a few moments when we take time and come to this table where the, where the promise of forgiveness is lived out in real time just the way he desired. And by the way, this table, think about this in the first century. The bread would be baking. The wine was pungent. Sorry, I don't think Welch's was around then. It was wine. Um, The texture, everything about the meal, it engaged all the senses. The sight, the taste, the feel. Because Jesus died And suffered at the deepest levels of his soul. That we might have life. And understand that he has designed that we have life to the full. 
I'll ask those who are serving this morning and the worship team, if you would come forward. And as they're coming, I want to give a few instructions. As lovely as it would be uh, to take a loaf of bread and break it and pass around the common cup in our day, uh, we don't do it that way. And with so many gluten allergies, we have gluten-free bread, so you don't have to worry about that. Um, and then the individual cups. Today is the first Sunday of the month, so we will be serving from the front. There will be four sections in the front, one section in front of, <clears throat> or one uh, team in front of each section uh, will be serving the bread and the juice. I'll ask you when you come uh, to partake of, but, or to, to, to receive both elements and then take it back to your seat, and we will partake all together. You'll come down the interior aisles. We will have um, <clears throat> deacons who will direct you when to come, and then you'll go back either through the center aisle or the outer aisles. It'll be a fairly easy flow. You will be able to see this, I know. This meal is intended for believers. So if you've trusted Christ, we invite you to partake with us, whether you're a member or not. <clears throat> but if you're not a believer, we would encourage you <clears throat> to pass, either just to walk by and go back to your seat or, or just to stay where you are. This meal is intended for believers. Our hope is not that we can overcome being a sinner and therefore be good enough. Our hope is that we are sinners for whom Christ died. Jesus died for us. So before we begin, let's take a moment. Bow your heads if you would. And if there are sins you need to confess, please do so. And then ask the Lord to strengthen your life, your soul, your being with this meal. He meets with us in a special way. And you're also reminded that you are a part of a community, a family. We do this together. <clears throat> because Jesus died for the church. So would you pray in your heart quietly? Father, we confess <clears throat> that we are the sinners. We have contemplated this morning from Isaiah 53. Really, our contemplation is on Jesus. <clears throat> but we recognize that it's our sins that put him there. Thank you for the love. So undeserved. So complete. So full. And this day, as we in obedience come to this table, we recognize that it's far more than just a box to check or something to do to complete our obedience. But we commune with you and you commune with us in a very special way at this table. 
We thank you, Jesus, for dying for us. We confess that we have sinned in thought, word, and deed this week. And we have done things we ought not. And we have left undone things that we ought to have done. Our hope is in Jesus. And we exalt him even as we remember his death. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.